This evening we're going to consider the spread of wickedness in the world. The spread of wickedness. Looking at Genesis chapter 4 verse 17 through to chapter 6 and verse 8. By way of recap, up until now in the book of Genesis we've seen that God completed his creative handiwork and he saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. But then by one man, that one man being Adam, sin entered the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. One of the consequences of sin entering the world was seen with the murder of Adam and Eve's second-born son Abel by his older brother Cain. This evening we shall consider the spread of wickedness in the earth. First of all, we shall consider the descendants of murderous Cain. After that, we shall consider Seth, whom Eve gave birth to after the death of Abel. Also we shall consider Seth's descendants, the first of whom was called Enos. Looking at chapter 4 in Genesis, verse 26, 4.26, And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Last of all, we shall see the consequences of godly people being unequally yoked with the ungodly. And suffice to say for now that it's like mixing drinking water with poison. What do you end up with when you mix drinking water with poison? You end up with poison. First of all, we'll consider the descendants of murderous Cain. It would be easy to assume that all who descended from unbelieving and murderous Cain, Cain who had been cursed by God after he murdered his brother, that all those descendants were no doubt as ungodly as he was. After all, who would Cain's descendants have had as a godly influence in their lives when they were growing up? Whom would they have had to raise them in the nurture and in the admonition of the Lord? Presumably, no one. However, that as may be, the Bible does not tell us that all the descendants of Cain were ungodly, unbelieving and under his curse. Therefore, we ought to at least allow for the possibility that some of his descendants were, by the grace of God, grace of God, men and women of faith in the Lord their God. That said, when you look at Cain's descendants, there's nothing in those verses that jump out of you and indicate that any of them were trusting in the Lord. As for Cain's grandson, Lamech, his life was most certainly not consistent with him being a man of God. Look, for example, looking at Cain, murderous Cain's descendants, look at chapter 4, verse 19. The grandson, Lamech, took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Adar, and the name of the other, Zelah. 
So he took unto him two wives. That was a clear violation of God's decree concerning marriage. Back in chapter 2, verse 24, it is written that a man shall leave his father and his mother and he shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be one flesh. You get that lovely picture, don't you? A man and woman cleaving together as one flesh. That does not allow for polygamous unions, polygamous relationships, that man cleaving to his wife. It's clearly a one man, one woman relationship. And that is how God has instituted marriage. And yet we see the grandson of murderous Cain marrying two wives, taking two wives for himself. And then there's chapter 4, verse 23, still with Lamech there, and we can see that he was a murderer. Look at it, halfway through there. I have slain a man to my wounding, and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. So he was a murderer, just like his grandfather Cain. Secondly, we'll consider Seth and his descendants, looking at verse chapter 4, verse 25 and 26. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. That is appointed, that's what the name means, appointed, For God, said she, have appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son and called his name, he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Eve saw Seth as compensation from God for the loss of, of her murdered second-born son, Abel, it can be seen that at least some of Seth's descendants were most certainly trusting in the Lord. Again, we don't really see that in Cain's genealogy there, uh, the descendants of Cain, rather, but we do see it with the descendants of uh, of Seth, who, who was born after the death of Abel. For one thing, with the birth of Seth's son Enos, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. We see that there. That's quite a, that's an amazing thing. Verse 26. Men began, began to call on the name of the Lord. And it can be seen that that actually happened, that great event happened 235 years after the first man, Adam, was formed from the dust of the ground. Finally, after 235 years. Uh, I'd, I'd like to do a bit of arithmetic here. I won't bore you with all the arithmetic, but um, just a little bit here. According to chapter 5 and verse 3, Adam was 130 years old when he begat Enos's father, Seth. So there you go. From the time that Adam was formed from the dust of the earth, 130 years later... Um, Enos's father Seth was born and according to chapter 5 and verse 6 Seth was 105 when he begat Enos and that's when men started to call on the name of the Lord if you just add those two numbers together the 130 years 
and then 105 years, that's 235 years, uh, and, and then finally we have this memorable event that men began to call upon the name of the Lord, where Lord means Jehovah God, it's the covenant name of God. It's not as if Adam and Eve did not know God as Lord, or Jehovah God. Eve referred to God as the Lord in chapter 4 and verse 1. Let's see that there. Adam Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain, and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So we have that there in chapter 4 verse 1. Also the Bible teaches that their son Abel, the, the, the son who was murdered by Cain, he was a man of faith. We can say that most categorically. We know that from the New Testament. So he would also have known God as Lord, as a covenantal God. However, calling upon the name of the Lord is something else altogether. It speaks of worship of the Lord by his people as a whole, as they invoke his covenant name and as they acknowledge God as their God. And and that finally began to happen after the birth of Seth's son Enos. But also those words in verse 26, where we read there, then men began, uh, then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. That can be read as men, uh, then began men to call themselves by the name of the Lord. Not call upon the name of the Lord, but they began to call themselves by the name of the Lord. And that speaks of separation and consecration to God. The Bible commentator Albert Barnes explains the new development that can be seen in four, chapter 4 verse 26 as follows. Growing man now comprehends all that is implied in the proper name of God, Jehovah, the author of being, of promise and of performance. He finds a tongue and ventures to express the desires and feelings that have been long pent up in his breast and are now bursting for utterance. It's altogether a lot more positive than what we've seen thus far. Then when you get to Enoch, it can be seen in chapter 5 and verse 22 that he walked with God. That's a picture of a very close communion indeed with God. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 5, we're told that by faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death and that he pleased God. It's only when a person has a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, or in Enoch's case, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was to come into the world many years later, it's only when he has a person has that saving faith in Christ that he can please God and that he can walk with God, as we see with Enoch, the descendant of Seth. Before we move on, we need not imagine that Enoch's walk with God meant that he spent his time having a walk in the park with his head up in the clouds, far from it. As a prophet of God, he proclaimed the coming judgment of God upon the wicked 
as it is written in the New Testament in Jude, chapter 14 and 15. And Enoch also, the seventh, seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all, and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Let's let's be a little bit general here about this and, and broaden this. We see what it meant for Enoch to walk with the Lord and to please the Lord. As I've said, it clearly, even though when it, well, he had faith, we know that from the New Testament, and that faith would have been in the Christ who was to come into the world. That is the first, foremost important thing, to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what? But he, as a man who pleased God and walked with God, he was preaching judgment here, the judgment to come. And I don't imagine that he, that he would have made himself particularly popular with the people, that man. Again, it certainly wasn't a case of him having a walk in the park with his head up in the clouds. After Enoch comes Noah, and just like Enoch, he was also a man of faith and a preacher of righteousness who walked with God. And we're going to be seeing a lot more about Noah in, in the weeks to come. But again, another godly descendant of Seth. Thirdly, we shall see that wickedness spread throughout the earth. I'm going to read to you again from chapter 6, 1 to 4. Just when it seemed to be getting a bit more positive here, with men beginning to call upon the name of the Lord after reading about Cain murdering his younger brother, after, after their father Adam had done the unthinkable and and, and sinned against God and brought sin and death into the world. But now, listen to these verses again. Chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that were, they, were, they were fair. And they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same began, became mighty men which were of old, men of renown, Let's extend this a little bit. Look at verse 5 there. A verse that um, I think I memorised years ago because the, the, the horror of it, this, the, the, this really, it's so descriptive of a fallen world here. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the first time I looked at that, and I remember, uh, I can't remember if someone actually told me or read it for myself, 
you could you could really jump to the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every thought of his heart was only evil continually. But it's not just every thought of his heart, it's every imagination of the thoughts of his heart. Just literally everything that's going on in his heart or her heart is what? Evil. Sometimes no, continually. Desperately wicked. What can be seen in these verses is a coming together of the sons of God and the daughters of men. It's believed by some and perhaps many, I don't know, that the sons of God were angels and that they had intimate relations with women referred to as the daughters of men. So the angels are the sons of God and the women are the daughters of men. They had intimate relations resulting in half-human, half-angelic baby giants being born. I don't accept that interpretation and I don't accept it for various reasons. For one thing, angels are spirit creatures and although it's clear in the New Testament that they are able to enter into and possess human beings, there's no reason to imagine that they are capable of impregnating women and fathering half-human, half-angelic babies. Nothing in the Bible gives us any cause to imagine that. The giants that are referred to in verse 4 are otherwise known as Nephilim, and you may have that word in your version of the Bible, instead of giants, uh, if you've got the NIV, for example, you'll have Nephilim uh, in verse 4. <coughs> the Nephilim, they're also referred to in the book of Numbers, in Numbers chapter 13. This is when Israel, many years later, when Israel had been delivered from slavery in Egypt and they were wandering around in the wilderness and um, they sent spies into the promised land to spy out the land and they came back with a bad report. They saw the, the spies came back reporting that there were giants in the land and they put fear into everyone's hearts with um, that report. So Numbers chapter 13 verse 33 refers to a time in history many years after the flood. Are we to believe that the Nephilim of of Numbers chapter 13 are descendants of the Nephilim, these half angelic, half human, whatever they are, that we read of in um, Genesis chapter 6, that somehow they survived the flood, there was going to be a flood, we'll come to that next week, a flood that wiped out the whole earth apart from eight people, yet somehow these half-angel, half-human creatures survived the flood and, and they pop up again in the book of Numbers. I think not. I go with the view that the sons of God were godly men and the daughters of men were ungodly women. At this point, it's tempting to assume that the sons of God consisted entirely of the male descendants of Seth. 
and the daughters of men consisted entirely of the female descendants of murderous, ungodly Cain. But it's not necessarily as black and white as that. The idea is that godly men, such as some of the men who are listed in Seth's line, for example, Enoch, who walked with God, who pleased God, also Noah, who walked with God uh, uh, as well. Um, So some of the godly line of Seth, and perhaps descendants from other lineages as well, it doesn't have to just be the line of Seth, were called the sons of God. They were godly people. They they were the ones who called on the name of the Lord and had a faith in God. And they were simply sons of God, godly men at that particular time in history. As for the daughters of men, they were, no doubt, murderous Cain's descendants and quite possibly... They came from the the line of Seth as well. uh, We don't know. We've got no reason to assume that the godly ones, the the sons of God, were all from the the line of Seth and the ungodly women were all from the line of murderous Cain. The godly men saw that the ungodly daughters of, of men were fair, we're told that there. Look at um, verse 2 in chapter 6. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. In other words, they were drawn to those women. The sons of God were drawn to those women by their natural beauty, and they married them. As the Bible commentator John Gill said, they were fair or good, not in a moral but natural sense, goodly to look upon, of a beautiful aspect, and they looked upon and only regarded their external beauty and lusted after them. As I said earlier, the result of that unholy alliance between the sons of God and the daughters of men was that it was like mixing drinking water with poison. You end up with poison And that can be seen to have been the case in verse 5 there. Again, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. After God had finished his creative handiwork, he saw that everything that he made was very good. But just... Uh, about one and a half thousand years later God saw wickedness everywhere and to think it all started with what? It started with Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden when he did what, ne- what should never be done. He disobeyed God. That was about four and a half thousand years ago and the thing is has anything really changed? Again, we're, go- we're going to be um, seeing the, the God's judgment upon the earth. Eight people only surviving that judgment, that flood. But has anything really changed? When you look, I don't know how many times I've looked at verse five over the years. 
I don't. I wouldn't have thought anything could change. Certainly not for the better at any rate. But that's sin for you. That's the nature of sin. We still live in the same fallen world, a world that is populated by sons and daughters of Adam with hearts that are deceitful above all things. Hearts that are desperately wicked. It's just more noticeable in some than in others. As the Apostle Paul said, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre, open tomb. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The Apostle Paul wasn't just describing the scene before the flood. This this describes the world that we live in. Now, the same as ever. The good news is that there is reconciliation with God for all who repent and trust in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of their wickedness and they trust in him for everlasting life. With a reference to the sin nature that we all inherit from Adam, not forgetting the sins that we commit ourselves, it's not all about us coming into the world, inheriting the sins of Adam, which we do, but you know as well as I do, we become more and more adept at committing sins. So, the the sin nature that we inherit from Adam, the sins that we commit, also the righteousness of God that forgiven sinners receive through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verses 18 to 19. He brings it all together and he says, Therefore, as by the offence of one, that one being Adam, Judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, Jesus, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. All men who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Being a Christian means acknowledging the sinfulness of one's own heart. You look at verse 5 in Genesis chapter 6 there. What you do though, having tried to get your head round what is being said in that verse there, not just every thought of the heart, but every imagination of the thought of the heart is evil. Not just evil, but evil continually. When you look at those words in verse 5 there, Being a Christian means acknowledging the sinfulness of one's own heart. Looking at verse 5 there about the wickedness of man and what we see in that verse is a fitting description of yourself. 
How important that is to recognise that is a, that's a description of me. It's all about believing that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a sinlessly perfect life on your behalf. Never mind anyone else, on your behalf. It's about believing that the evening before Jesus was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die, that he was in anguish and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground at the prospect of drinking the cup of sin, your sin. It's about believing that Jesus was wounded for your transgressions, that he was bruised for your wickedness. Every imagination of the thoughts of your heart were laid upon him at the cross there at Calvary and that he bare your sins in his own body at the cross. It's about receiving Jesus as your saviour and your Lord and him giving you, a natural born sinner, the great privilege, the great joy of becoming a son or daughter, not of Adam, but a, a daughter, a son or daughter of God, and knowing and addressing the Lord, that God as Lord, uh, and knowing him as your father. Amen.